I think that's where some institutions and and some folks are concerned. You know, they think this might amplify what you're mentioning, the digital divide, you know, the where some patients who can't afford technologies aren't going to get the latest and greatest technology, the latest and greatest screening. But, you know, in the long term, if we're able to support these types of patients getting this new technology, it is it is cheaper and sometimes easier to be screened for these diseases than the routine clinical standard of care. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Red Clive uh, podcast. And today we'll have Dr. David Harmon, who is a cardiovascular fellow at Mayo Clinic, Rochester, Minnesota, in the USA. And myself, Francisco Lopez Jimenez. I'm a preventive cardiologist and co-director of artificial intelligence in cardiology at Mayo Clinic, Rochester. Today, we will be talking about a paper published by Dr. Harmon on the detection of atrial fibrillation using artificial intelligence. And we'll go over uh, a number of topics that will be of interest to you and others on this very hot topic of detection of atrial fibrillation using devices, artificial intelligence, digital health, and other things. So welcome, Dr. Harmon. Thank you, Dr. Lopez. It's great being here today. Excellent. Well, that was a very, very nice publication, a publication that, that I wasn't part of, so I'm not, I am not biased uh, in, fair, in favor of against, but it was very good nonetheless. And um, you mentioned a number of very interesting um, things there, particularly the review of the exciting advances in the detection of atrial fibrillation using new technology. I mean, we we all know that the detection of atrial fibrillation in the past has relied primarily on full electrocardiograms performed at the uh, primary care offices or hospitals or medical settings or using advanced monitoring that will require doctors to order and to place those monitors on the patient's chest for hours or days, uh, technology that historically has been expensive, complex, not very accessible to many. And we all have had all this concern about, you know, are we missing patients with atrial fibrillation that we just cannot identify? So please, please uh, give us a you know, a review of those exciting advances you found during this review. Sure. No, this this was a very exciting article to to write and review with my fantastic co-authors. And there's so much technology out there. It's it's unbelievable. The AI advances have been in many different facets. There's some that are looking at electronic health records and trying to see what high-risk features might be associated with atrial fibrillation beyond our currently understood risk factors for atrial fibrillation. And then, as you mentioned, you know, a lot of these diagnoses have been made from 12-lead ECGs in the clinician office or on ultra-monitor ECGs that's placed on the patient by some clinician. And uh, it, and, you know, different institutions, including our own, have taken that one step further, applying artificial intelligence to some of these 12-lead and Holter monitor technologies to identify the high risk of atrial fibrillation, even when a patient is still in a normal sinus rhythm, which I think is just a fascinating advance. One advance that really caught my eye and that I still have not 
really over is this uh, this paper. It was a letter to JAMA Cardiology by Yoon et al. in 2020. And it was a group that actually used uh, digital videography looking at facial photoplasmography. So looking at the pulses in the face over approximately one minute at a time. And it could look at five patients sitting together at once and detect which of these patients had atrial fibrillation. And it actually had pretty high accuracy. I think 80% of the time it was correct. The sensitivity and the specificity for this type of detection was over 90%, I think over 95% for, for both. And, it, you know, this really opens the door of rather than having this one-on-one test intensive screening for atrial fibrillation, we might be able to start screening for atrial fibrillation, you know, while patients are waiting for to see the doctor with just videography. We're also seeing this with the Apple Watch technology too. I mean, patients are having atrial fibrillation. I've had patients with atrial fibrillation detected by their Apple Watch, and it's actually remarkably accurate. So I think the big advance that we're seeing is atrial fibrillation being detected beyond the clinic walls and by nuanced technology that isn't so time intensive on clinicians and practitioners. Excellent. Thank you. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that, on the tool that, that you mentioned that, you know, I was part of it, but but I think the audience will be particularly interested in the detection of atrial fibrillation when patients are in sinus rhythm. How, how is that possible if, if what you have in front of you is a normal rhythm and you're telling me that the machine is telling us, oh, you know, it's normal rhythm, but this patient has atrial fibrillation. How, how can that happen? Right. No, this is this has been an exciting advance at uh, the Mayo Clinic and, and a few other institutions where we've used a type of artificial intelligence using a convolutional neural network. And uh, essentially, we've had a computer or a digital program look at over, you know, hundreds of thousands of ECGs all in sinus rhythm. But we know the ground truth using this as a retrospective programming that we're able to tell which of these patients ended up with a diagnosis of atrial fibrillation over time. And then we were able to tell this algorithm which of these patients had atrial fibrillation, even while they're in sinus rhythm presenting during an initial presentation to the office. Now, after lots of training and validation, we were able to test this algorithm and show that we could accurately detect patients at high risk of atrial fibrillation, even from this sinus rhythm ECG, even while a patient was not in atrial fibrillation in the office. And then Dr. Noseworthy and his team actually pushed this one step further and said, well, if patients have a high risk sinus rhythm ECG, as ECG that even though in sinus rhythm, the score says this patient likely has atrial fibrillation that hasn't been detected. He started actually sending these patients home with Holter monitor devices for 30 days. And we actually were able to see that compared to the current standard of care of sending a Holter monitor to patients that we clinically suspect patients have atrial fibrillation, he saw that by using this additional artificial intelligence screening, we were able to increase that diagnosis and increase that detection of atrial fibrillation by using this uh, this nuanced technology. Yeah, that's great. Now, the, the other area that uh, really caught my attention in the paper was this detection of atrial fibrillation using uh, plain chest X-rays. Okay, can you can you also elaborate a, a bit on on how, how can that be possible from an X-ray to determine or to guess that the patient might have atrial fibrillation? Sure. So. 
during atrial fibrillation, especially those with more chronic atrial fibrillation and permanent atrial fibrillation, you see distortion of the atria, of the blood-holding portion of the heart. And particularly, the left atrium can become quite enlarged. And even early atrial fibrillation, paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, where it's not chronic or permanent, there still can be some distortion of that left atrium. So in a similar fashion to how we used a neural network to detect minuscule changes, you know, changes we don't, we can't see as clinicians on a sinus rhythm ECG to predict atrial fibrillation. This group also did a similar study using normal chest x-rays looking at patients with atrial fibrillation and without atrial fibrillation. And they actually used a technique called saliency mapping to see where this neural network was really focusing on during this evaluation of chest x-rays. And what it pointed out to was the left side of the chest in the area where the left atrium is. And this is, you know, indicative of this atrium under, undergoes distortion over time, especially in the atrial fibrillation process. And so we can imagine there's a lot of patients that get chest x-rays that may not have, you know, formal ECGs, formal screening for atrial fibrillation. But this might also be a way to pick up data to screen patients that might be at risk for atrial fibrillation if we see this, this score go up, seeing that there may be some left atrial dilation. Yeah, excellent. Thank you. So what do you think are the main barriers to implement those technologies to detect more patients with atrial fibrillation that might benefit from, from therapy? So there's there's a few different barriers that are, you know, that are quite diverse. I think one of the big barriers is, you know, big practices and individual providers' willingness to adopt this new technology. Some of it is very much a black box. You know, we know that we can accurately detect atrial fibrillation from a sinus rhythm ECG, but we don't necessarily know fully in full transparency what this neural network is identifying in a sinus rhythm ECG that gives us this high or low risk score. And that is similar throughout a lot of different artificial intelligence technologies. So I think there's an element of trust, an element of understanding that goes into adopting these new technologies, but not everybody adapts at the same rate. And some practices and some institutions are slower to adapt, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I think that might be one of the barriers we see when this technology is still in the breakthrough phase, and we still don't know the full clinical impact and implications that maybe some places may not adopt things until we know for sure, you know, years down the road that this becomes routine clinical care. The other big barrier that I foresee is twofold. It's affording this technology. Now you think smaller clinical practices may not be able to host these types of artificial intelligence algorithms within their institution. And then some patients may not be able to afford the technology that uses this artificial intelligence, you know, such as an Apple watch or, um, go to clinical practices that can host this type of artificial intelligence. So I think there may be also a cost barrier, affordability barrier, and also a translatability barrier that we see when we have an AI system developed at one institution, if it may or may not be easily transferable to a different institution. Good. So basically, uh, part of what you are saying is that those technologies might um, or have the potential to amplify inequities in healthcare, right? If we depend on technology to detect those, uh, particularly in this case, atrial fibrillation, that might be accentuated, but it, it can easily go the other way, right? It, we can say, well, this technology right. is cheaper than a standard halters or setting up appointments and mm -hmm. things that, re that rely 
completely on having access to healthcare, and and therefore this technology that is more accessible and affordable might help to bring down those barriers. Uh, I think can go either way, but I think that's an excellent uh, excellent point. Right. I, I think that's where some institutions and and some folks are concerned you know they think this might amplify what you're mentioning the digital divide you know the where some patients who can't afford technologies aren't going to get the latest and greatest technology the latest and greatest screening but you know in the long term if we're able to support these types of patients getting this new technology it is it is cheaper and sometimes easier to be screened for these diseases than the routine clinical standard of care and so hopefully we can maybe in conjunction develop technology that is somewhere in the middle that uses this artificial intelligence technology, but also is an affordable artificial intelligence technology so we don't broaden this digital divide. So I think that's an excellent point that, you know, there's some pushback that, well, we're making all these great tools, but who actually can afford it? Who actually can use it? And the argument back to that as well, this is currently cheaper, you know, using a standard 12 ADCG at the bedside to screen is cheaper than a full ultra monitor test. Yeah. Now, obviously, the increased access also comes at a price, right? So uh, in this particular case, uh, being able to detect atrial fibrillation with a smartwatch or with simple devices or um, even with, with things that were meant to to detect atrial fibrillation like the X-ray, uh, there is then the potential for more people being widely tested. And therefore the number of people who might not have atrial fibrillation, but was flagged as probably having atrial fibrillation is there. Any concerns about the tsunami of patients coming to the clinic saying, hey, you know, I have atrial fibrillation because my uh, smartwatch is telling me so. Um, any concerns on that? And how can we confront or resolve this potential of, of excessive amounts of false positives that might overwhelm the healthcare system that is already overwhelmed in many countries? Right. No, this is, I've had this discussion with a few colleagues, especially when, you know, we start putting this technology on smartwatches and cardiac devices, you know, things where patients can carry them in their pocket or purchase over the counter. There's huge implications with that. And I think the the first and foremost uh, learning point is that clinicians and providers need to understand what this technology is and what is implied from it. Because, you know, lack of knowledge, then we're just going to start ordering tests for every patient that comes in and says that I have atrial fibrillation based on my smart device. And there is an element of clinician judgment that is still needed. You know, we, we haven't yet been replaced by robots. We haven't yet been replaced by artificial intelligence. And I hope that's a, a bit down the road. But, you know, we still need to have this in clinical practice. You know, if somebody comes in and says, I have atrial fibrillation, but they have a very low thrombotic risk, you know, a CHADS 2 VASC score of zero or one. Do we really need, do we need to go looking for this? And I mean, the argument is potentially yes, and that's a whole other EP dilemma. But, you know, the clinical context is everything here and learning how to appropriately apply that clinical context to these artificial devices is going to be uh, very important going forward. Yeah, excellent. So what is your general recommendation for a patient that comes to you that uh, shows you know a few uh, screenshots of a device that says you might have atrial fibrillation. Do you um, what do you do? Do you uh, do a halter right away? 
Do you do a regular ECG? Um, uh, do, do you consider those results as face value? If you see the tracing and you say, well, this seems to be atrial fibrillation, nothing else is needed. W what do you do in a patient, let's say, at low intermediate risk for stroke? Um, uh, what, what is your approach? That's a very good question. <laughs> that puts me that puts me on the spot a bit because you know I, I I very much preach that these devices that we are using nowadays are they're actually quite accurate. You know the the Cardia Mobile by AliveCore and the Apple Watch the the ECGs are remarkably accurate. I depended. <laughs> I have to admit, I had a, a friend come up to me with a family member's ECG from an Apple Watch and say, what do you think the other day? And my my gut instinct was saying, well, they still need to get a 12-lead ECG and a Holter monitor before really confirming this diagnosis. And, you know, I think it may vary patient to patient. Sometimes I get these recordings and there's a lot of background noise. The recording segment's very short and I don't feel necessarily confident that this recording that I'm looking at is for sure atrial fibrillation or for sure is not atrial fibrillation. But there have been a few times where I have gotten a recording from a Cardia mobile device or an Apple Watch device that's a 30-second recording. There's not very much noise, and I'm able to actually interpret it at face value. Now, I will say I've done more reassurance of patients being able to say this is sinus rhythm with because I can see clear P-wave morphology throughout a recording. Uh, atrial fibrillation with the disorganized atrial activity, sometimes that can mimic artifact, and it's sometimes hard to tell that artifact from true atrial fibrillation in some of these different recording devices. So typically, if I am starting to get suspicious for atrial fibrillation, I'll go down that diagnostic pathway still, which is a fairly classical clinician pathway. But if I see this is actually sinus rhythm, then I will actually trust the device. So I, I think that answers your question. I'm kind of in the middle of two, I'm in the, I'm in the middle of adopting my own uh, my own sermon. Of <laughs> these devices are accurate and accurate enough to use. Um, I think if pushed, you you could easily diagnose it from one of these devices. But sometimes I still I still rely on the the clinically accepted data. No, but I think that's a that, that's an extremely useful point that you just made is that that the response is perhaps it all depends, right? If the signal is relying just on an irregular rhythm that depends on PPG uh, or the platysmography uh, of, of the finger or else, uh, well, you, you are not diagnosing atrial fibrillation. You are detecting an irregular heartbeat that might imply atrial fibrillation. But uh, the point is, uh, that some in some cases, the signal is actually detecting an, an electrocardiogram. And as a clinician, we might be able to diagnose uh, atrial fibrillation there. And, and perhaps that's all we need in some cases. So um, uh, because, because I suspect that is a question that a lot of clinicians, particularly non-cardiologists, non might be dealing with, right? Um, Excellent. So it's good to know that in some situations, we might not need anything else. In many others, we might need confirmatory tests. And in others, when uh, clearly what you see is not atrial fibrillation, uh, might not need anything else for the time being. Good. So my, my last question for you is, what, what do you think will be the next big steps in AI for the detection of atrial fibrillation? What, what do you think needs to happen or will happen for that matter? 
I think that we'll start seeing AI more frequently used. I think now we're starting to apply it, but I don't know if it's necessarily used. You know, clinician to clinician, even here at Mayo, where we have AI ECGs readily available to every practitioner, some practitioners don't even know that the dashboard to look at this data exists. And then some folks who do know this dashboard exists still <clears throat> don't use it or don't really rely heavily on it. I think we'll see a more heavily reliance on this type of data, especially when the question is still out there when the patients had multiple Holter monitors, but either had a stroke or had symptoms, and we'll start turning to this AI uh, technology more frequently. I think that we will start to see also more of a distinction of good versus bad artificial intelligence, meaning that we will be able to, to see that not every artificial intelligence system is a success because I think right now any anything that has artificial intelligence in it and is somewhat valid is accepted and is exciting and it's a new tool to use. But I think we'll start seeing that we can do better and better as far as artificial intelligence go with diagnosing atrial fibrillation and some of these initial technologies we came out with will be outdated or or, or deemed not valid for atrial fibrillation. So, and I think that's not just an atrial fibrillation. I think that's across different cardiovascular pathologies. So it will be interesting to see how that develops and how we validate and accept certain artificial intelligence enhanced screening tools and diagnostic tools versus others. And I think that's going to be a, a big learning curve for not only cardiology, but you know the medical field as a whole. Excellent. Thank you. No, I... I, I agree that we, we, we need to start uh, selecting what is good AI, what is bad AI, and also whether the validation studies apply to our patients, to our population, right? And, and whether or not the validation translates into clinical um, value. So I think those are those will be, in my point of view, issues that we'll have to determine also uh, soon. Well. Um, th thank you. Thank you for your uh, answers. Thank you for this uh, great discussion. And also thank you for publishing that paper that I think is going to be extremely useful uh, for many readers and also even for patients who might have concerns about having atrial fibrillation or having a device that is telling them they, they have atrial fibrillation. Uh, obviously, we don't have the answers uh, for everything uh, regarding this issue, but I think the the light is 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 there. So we are seeing the light at the end of the tunnel in regards to better detection of atrial fibrillation because we, we didn't mention this uh, at the beginning, but we know that this is one of the main causes of stroke in the uh, United States, in Europe, in most places of the world, and uh, we might see actually a, a different phase in medicine when. Um, a lot of patients at risk might um, be able to be detected on time and treated, and we might be able to change the curse of of uh, of the consequences, or, or, or in other words, of preventing uh, many strokes that will otherwise happen because the patient had atrial fibrillation undetected. Well, uh, thank you, Dr. Harmon, and and have a great day. Goodbye. Thank you, Dr. Lopez. I appreciate it. Thank <laughs> you.